Good morning, Grace. Your reading this morning is Luke 1, 26 to 35. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Morning. Well, it's, it's good to be with you, and I've probably said this before, but it's an honor to preach. And that's not a, a formality. I don't say that lightly. It, it truly is an honor to be able to devote my time to studying a passage and then to explain it and preach it as faithfully as I can. Um, that you guys trust me to do that, that you pray for whoever's preaching during the week, I appreciate you. Thank you for that. Thank you for taking God's word seriously and and having a high view of preaching and expecting to be fed by it. So it's an honor to feed you this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Almighty God, you alone are God. Nothing else in this entire universe compares with your glory and your power. Help us this morning through your spirit to understand all that is in this passage and also to understand who you are as Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you that you are God and we are not. Thank you that you are inexhaustible and like a great ocean, we can never get to the bottom of all of who you are. But you've revealed yourself to us and we can know you and we can delight in what we do know. And what you have revealed of your nature and your character and your work. I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of you in order to love and trust you more and to love and trust, love others as well. So I ask that you show us your glory this morning. Show us how to properly worship you during this Advent season. And whatever is not helpful in this sermon, let it fall to the floor. And whatever you desire for us to know and apply, I ask that you drive it deep in our hearts. I pray these things in the name of Jesus and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this is a a very familiar passage. We're going to look at it from a, a little bit different angle this morning. We're approaching Christmas. More candles are getting lit. We've already heard Pastor Dave preach about the first coming of Christ and also awaiting his glorious return in his second coming. And our hope with all of these sermons during Advent is to 
stoke our appreciation and our affections for Christ. And while the incarnation focuses primarily on Jesus, and that's a good thing, what it means that he entered into the history of redemption, but the incarnation revolves around all three persons of the Godhead. So this morning and next week, we're going to look closer at the Trinity, the role of all three persons in the incarnation. So this morning, we're going to look at the Father's work and the Spirit's work, and then next week, we will look at the Son's work in the incarnation. But before we get to our our actual text, I wanted to help us get our bearings around the Trinity. So maybe you hear the word Trinity, and it causes you to check out. Or assume it's a heady academic discussion that's for super Christians or something like that. Maybe it's just hard to wrap your head around a doctrine like this. One in three, one God, three persons. How does that work? Maybe you worry about getting it wrong. You've seen people throughout history get it wrong and they fall into heresy when talking about the Trinity. No one wants to get it wrong. But this is who the God of the Bible is. So we have to work to understand this doctrine. It's all of our responsibilities. The Trinity is vital to our faith. It's what separates us from other false religions like Islam and Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. They reject the Trinity. So not all of us will become scholars of the Trinity, but this is who God has revealed himself to be. So we must all strive to know the Trinity. Kids, I challenge you. Learn something this week about the Trinity. Sing a song, learn a song and sing it. Do something to expand your understanding of who God is. And it's not only for our head knowledge. It's certainly that. But the deeper we go, the greater we understand, the greater our faith and our love for God becomes. I'm not very musical. I don't play an instrument. I'm not well-versed in classical composers, for example. But... I can hear a good song or a performance, and I can tell you it's good at some level. I recognize that is good. There's talent involved in that. But I can't explain why, why it's good. I, I know it's good, but I can't explain the technique or the work that went into that. But someone who does play an instrument, someone who plays a piano or is a cellist, can tell you why another musician is talented in more detail, in in greater depth and appreciation. Or any of us could have a delicious meal. You go, that's delicious. I know it's delicious. But it takes someone who is more familiar with cooking and ingredients and techniques to have a greater appreciation of that meal. It's true of any field where we can recognize excellence, but we can grow in our appreciation of it the more we understand about that, that particular field. So that's how how God is. We can know God is great, but the more we understand about who God is in his character and nature, the greater we appreciate it, the greater we have affection and worship for the triune God. And as I said before, we can also grow in our trust of him in order to be more obedient. So before we get to the text, let's look at some some basic thoughts on the Trinity. There's six that I, I wrote down on the, the, sermon, the sermon discussion guide. And these are all points that the church has historically affirmed. Um, and you can find examples of these kinds of affirmations in our historic creeds and confessions. 
Creeds like the Nicene or the Apostles or the Athanasian Creed. We have the privilege today of standing on the shoulders of, of giants who have gone before us to study scripture and articulate what scripture says about who God is. And so we benefit from that. So with that, let's, let's look at what the Bible says about the Trinity. Number one, there is one God. We see this all throughout the Old and the New Testament. Here's a couple, couple of verses to explain this. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 43:11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. And even in the New Testament, James 2:19, You believe that God is one. You do well. In other words, that's true. Even the demons believe this and shudder. The theme of scripture is consistent, that the God of the Bible is consistently described as one. When God is compared to other idols and false gods, the Bible speaks of the one true God. But as we see in point number two, the Bible also describes God as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three persons in one God. And now it's, it's key to note that by person, we don't mean human. So Jesus took on human nature. He became a human. But the Father and the Spirit did not. But they're still persons. They still have personality. They have attributes that are personal. They think. They express emotions. They are referred to as persons in Scripture. And they all possess the divine nature. All the divine nature that God is, all three persons possess that. They're identical in being and status. They're each worthy of worship. And we can see this many places in scripture, but a couple of of places I'll highlight that that show all three persons on the same level in, in the context. So Matthew 28, the Great Commission Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, putting them on the same plane. 2 Corinthians 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. They're all mentioned together with the same reverence and the same um, status and being. But while they're they have equality. They are different in function. Number three, equal in being, different in function. Each person of the Godhead is fully God, but also unique in his particular work. They have different roles to play. So only Jesus died on the cross, for example. But the Father and the Spirit had roles to play in the work of the atonement. Only the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. But the Father and the Son had work to do different functions within that, that work. And at different times throughout scripture, one of the persons might be more prominent, but all three are present and at work. So we see in the Old Testament, the father is very prominent, but then in the new, we see the son more explicitly mentioned in scripture and later the Holy Spirit. So all three are present and at work, but doing different functions. Hebrews nine fourteen uh, describes some of this. Again, listen for all all three persons, but the different work. How much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we see Christ offering his blood through the spirit, offering it to the father. And within this work, point number four, the three persons are perfectly united and are all present in the work of God. So it's not that they have different wills, different ideas and desires. They're all united to fulfill the work of God. All work, all work that God does involves all three persons. One example of this is is Genesis 1. We see in creation that the Father created all things. And the Spirit was hovering over the waters and participating in this work. And then it's not as clear from Genesis, but later in the New Testament, Scripture describes the work of Christ in creation. He was shown to be at creation. Colossians 1 tells us that all things were made through him. So the different persons performing different roles, but united in their work. We could look at other examples and point out other roles. The revelation of scripture, providence, prayer, worship, the atonement, the resurrection. Take time this week. Find one of those examples and and try and understand what is the role of each of the three persons in the work of God. Or here's another way to do it. Read one of the Gospels. Read it in in a short amount of time and, and try and listen for each of the three persons and what they do. This kind of this kind of work and how they work together is especially present in John's gospel. So if you were to read John's gospel very quickly and just listen for how Jesus talks about the work of himself, of the father and of the spirit, it's hard to completely pull their work apart. It's, it's united and intertwined and yet distinct. So because there's distinct work, because they're working together, point number five is that there's an order among the persons. Again, all three are equal, equal in being and majesty, but there's a hierarchy. The father sends the son or begets the son. Doesn't mean the son is less than in being, but his role is to be sent and and to submit. The son does the father's will. And then the spirit is sent by the father and the son. So here's another verse that describes this kind of interaction in the hierarchy and things like that. First Peter one, Peter's addressing uh, his audience and he says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Again, once you are looking for this in scripture, you'll see it everywhere where all three are present and working together. Number six, Maybe you've already guessed this. There's mystery. There's mystery that is beyond our comprehension. We can't know all the workings of the Trinity, but we can know enough. We can't completely know all of his works, how, how it works and what exactly is going on. But the Bible has revealed enough about the Trinity to understand who, is, who God is. And the Bible doesn't apologize or, or try and reconcile all there is to know about the Trinity. 
And even that is a good thing. That there is mystery to this is a good thing. Because our God is greater than our understanding. Why would you want to worship a God who is below our understanding? Or that we can completely comprehend? Our God is inexhaustible. Maybe we'll understand more after Christ's return. But for now, we have enough. We have enough knowledge of who God is, the one God in three persons. We have enough to know him, truly. Deuteronomy 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We can know enough about God in order to be saved, in order to worship him, in order to obey his commandments. And the other mysterious parts, we have to leave in the hands of God. Okay, that's an overview of the Trinity. And maybe that sounds intimidating. It sounds overwhelming. It's a lot to keep straight. If you're asking, like, well, who exactly am I supposed to worship? Is it, do I divide it three ways? One God? Do I worship the Father more, the Spirit, the Son? What if I get it wrong? But the beauty is that our triune God is so glorious. He has made it hard to get wrong. One of the church fathers, by the name of Gregory Nazianzus, puts it this way. This is a a quote from him. He says, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I, compl- when I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. It's a great description of, we don't know exactly how this works, but the one and the three are working perfectly together. In other words, let your thoughts of our most high God cause you to think and meditate on the three persons and the way they work together. And when you think in that way, it circles back to the one God and that you respond in worship. But our worship shouldn't miss the one or the three. So we have to learn and understand who our God is. That's a lot right off the bat. I realize that. It's kind of abstract. It's a little bit out there. But hopefully as we now turn to our passage, maybe we can see it a little bit more practically, a little bit more concretely. So let's go to Luke 1. It's familiar. You've all heard it. Maybe you've even acted it out or had your kids act it out. We're going to look at the role of the Father, sending, and the role of the Holy Spirit, conceiving. So let's look at the Father first. We're going to look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. It's not as obvious in this passage, but the role of the Father primarily is to send the Son. The role of the Father in the incarnation is to send the Son. It's implied here by God first sending the angel to deliver news of what the Father will do. Then he'll send his messenger, 
John, the forerunner. And ultimately, Gabriel's message to Mary describes what will actually happen when the son comes. And the father is responsible for sending. What's implicit here in Luke 1 is made explicit in other places in the New Testament, especially, again, in John's writings, in both his gospel and his epistles. Maybe the most famous verse in all of scripture, John 3.16. 3.16 and 17 says this. This is one of the reasons why the father sent the son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There are other passages that describe the father sending the son for multiple reasons. But maybe it's best summarized in in 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The father sends the son to give life and to be a propitiation, which is a fancy way of saying the son came to atone for our sins and turn away the wrath of the father. The father sends the son to save the world. So going back to Luke 1, we can see more of the work of the father. Verse 31 gives us a clue. The father sends the son for salvation. Gabriel tells Mary to name this child Jesus. The name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. So Jesus came to do the father's will, which was to save the world from sin and death and grant eternal life. But there's more to what Gabriel tells Mary. There's more involved in what the father does in his sending. So we look at verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So here we see three more things that are wrapped up in the sending of the father. So in sending, the father is also granting his son. He's granting him greatness. He's granting him a throne and to rule an eternal kingdom. So let me say a little bit about each of these. Number one, he will be great and called the son of the most high. When Gabriel went to Zechariah and told John, told about John and his role, he was the prophet of the most high, not the most high. Now the son is the most high. This title most high is first used back in Genesis, but Genesis 14. There we see a story of Abraham defeating all the kings of that region or that world. And then he meets Melchizedek, this mysterious king priest. And he, he describes it this way when he meets Abraham. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this mysterious Melchizedek is acknowledging God as most high. And he was a priest of God most high. So as great as Melchizedek was, now we have someone even greater, the son of most high. 
as great as Abraham and Melchizedek were, as great of a messenger as John the Baptist was, the Son of God, Most High, far surpasses them in greatness. And that greatness is granted to him by the Father. Number two, he will be given the throne of David. Notice earlier in the passage that Joseph is mentioned from the house of David. And now this child that's to come is tied more directly to the house of David. Not only is he tied to the house, but the father is giving him the throne of David that was promised in 2 Samuel 7. So God spoke to David in that passage and says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this promise is now tied to the Son, the Son of God. David was the greatest king in Israel's history. And his his immediate son, Solomon, built a house for the Lord. He built the temple. But ultimately, he was not the son. That son had to wait until here in Luke 1. Now we see that Jesus, as that son, will rule forever. Which brings us to the final aspect of the Father's giving, an eternal kingdom. The son will receive the eternal kingdom of Jacob. We've seen in Genesis how the family of Jacob received blessing. And Judah was given a promise that the scepter another symbol of royal rule, would not depart from his line. Jesus, who is a descendant of Judah, will rule from a throne, and he will rule God's kingdom, and it will last forever. One of the familiar passages we have during Advent is Isaiah 9.6. We all know it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But we tend to stop there. But Luke goes on and connects verse 7 of Isaiah 9 to Luke 1. Listen to the similar language in Isaiah 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When does the kingdom come? According to Isaiah, it comes when this child is born. And Luke is picking up on that. The kingdom is here because the king has already come. And there will be no end to his kingdom and to his rule. Jesus came in the flesh to save his people from sins. And we're very familiar with that. He came as a suffering servant. But he also came to establish his rule and his reign over this world. It doesn't always look like it. We don't yet have peace and justice and righteousness everywhere. It's a kingdom that will grow and expand like leaven in dough. It will increase over time. It can feel in our world like things are out of control. But this passage and others remind us that the king is ruling from his throne and is sovereign over this world. There's more that I wish I could say about that here, but keep that in mind as you celebrate Christmas. It's not just about 
dying for sins. It's not just coming as a suffering servant. It's coming as a king. We worship a king. He came to save the world from the curse of sin, not only for ours, but to redeem the world from the curse of sin and to rule forever as God's king. So Gabriel explains this good news of the son of the most high, sent by the most high. And Mary raises a question that serves as a transition between the two persons we're looking at. Mary asks, how? How will this be since I'm a virgin? How will this actually come about? And that moves us to the second section in verse 35, where we see the role of the Holy Spirit in the incarnation. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The role of the Holy Spirit in the incarnation is to conceive. And that sounds like a strange way of talking about the eternal Christ. But it's true. If Jesus is and has always been God, the question might be, why does he need to be born or conceived? And here's where we need to have another piece to understand about the incarnation. Just as it's important to understand the one God in three persons, we also need to understand the nature of Jesus. Jesus' divine nature, his godness, is eternal and uncreated. He has existed within the Trinity for all time and before time. But one of the wonders of the incarnation is that he took on a second nature. He didn't exchange natures. He didn't mix natures. But one person, fully divine, took on a separate nature, the nature of humanity. So in his human nature, Jesus was born. And first he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And there's two aspects to this that that Gabriel mentions. The Spirit will come upon and overshadow That's one. And secondly, the spirit will consecrate the son. So again, looking at the first part of of 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. This idea of the spirit coming upon Mary has similarities to the spirit's role in creation when he hovers over the waters. And again, I wish we had more time to dwell on this, but it's pointing to this new creation. The spirit hovering over the waters is the first creation. Christ coming as a man symbolizes the entrance of the new creation. The first creation is passing away and the incarnation marks the beginning of a new creation. It goes on and says that the spirit will overshadow Mary. What exactly does that mean? The word overshadows is a, it's not used very much in the Bible, but when it is, it's almost always tied to the glory of God. In Exodus, after the the tabernacle is built and erected, the glory of the Lord overshadowed the tent. Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In English, it doesn't say overshadowed, but it's the same word as this... (laughs) presence of the glory of God. Even more interesting, 
In the Gospels, during Jesus' ministry, we see this overshadowing at the transfiguration. In Luke's account, Jesus and Peter and John are up on the mountain. And right after Peter is wanting to put up tents, Peter says, as, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Do you see the, the pieces at least that are similar here to our passage? The presence of God is made known through a glorious overshadowing. And we also see God the Father identifying his son. The son is given a name in Luke 1. And this is part of the role of the Holy Spirit. The second aspect, consecration, is also found in verse 35. When it says, Therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Just as all the vessels in the tabernacle and in the temple were set apart and made holy, Jesus will be called holy. He will be set apart. He will be holy. His human nature will be holy. His divine nature has always been holy. But why does this matter? Jesus is holy because he's God. Why does he need to be made holy? Again, Jesus must take on human nature in order to atone for humanity. To redeem humanity, he must take on human nature. And because humans' sinful nature is inherited from Adam, all of humanity is corrupted. So to ensure a perfect, sinless human nature, the Holy Spirit must overshadow Mary and set the Son apart as holy. It's the same sanctifying power that dwells in the hearts of all who trust in the gospel, that we would be made holy through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Father sends, the Spirit conceives. It's a lot to wrap our heads around. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? Well, why did the son need to come in the first place? The first son of God, Adam, rebelled, caused the world to fall into sin and corruption. And that's been passed down to all of us. We don't naturally honor God. We naturally hate God. And because of that, we get our deserved death sentence. And that's why Christ came, to save the world. He lived a holy life, enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit in order that he could die for the sins of his people. Notice also Mary's response. Mary receives favor, unmerited favor, grace from God. She didn't do anything. She received it. And so do we. We don't deserve this wonderful gift of the Son. We don't deserve to know the triune God or receive gifts from the Father or have the Holy Spirit dwell in our hearts and make us holy. So how do we respond? Do we respond in pride, try and work out our own salvation? Or do we take the posture of Mary, a young girl of humble background with a humble posture to match? Mary responds in faith and singing a song of worship to her creator and savior. We can't fully know God, but we can truly know him. And that's wonderful. 
because you don't want to worship a God that is exhaustible, that is fully knowable. Our God is worthy because there will always be more to know and understand. We will always find ways to grow deeper in our love and worship of the triune God. So as we approach Christmas Day, may we recognize the glory of the incarnation. In love, the Father sent his Son, giving him greatness, honor, authority, and an eternal kingdom. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary to conceive and consecrate the Son. Christ's mission doesn't happen apart from the Father and the Spirit. Because of the glorious way he was born, he was holy and able to withstand sin. He perfectly fulfilled the law's requirement. Without that, his offering at the cross is insufficient. All three persons are needed for the incarnation. We'll look at the role of the Son next week, but I pray that this week you're able to see how each of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, play vital roles in all of God's work. And there's no exception within the incarnation. In everything God does, all three persons are involved. From creation to redemption to the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth, Father, Son, and Spirit are always working together to accomplish their purposes. So look at the incarnation this season. See how each person plays a glorious role in the coming of Christ. The Father sends, the Son, Spirit conceives, and the Son dwells. So we'll look at the role of Christ next week. Our God is worthy of everything our worship, and our very lives.